Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa, Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa, a UN Security Council deadlocked on Myanmar's political crisis, mixed reaction to Judicial Conduct Committee decision against South Africa's Chief Justice and in economics news, tributes pour in for APSA Deputy CEO Peter Matlari, who died of COVID-19, and in sports news, South Africa beat India in one-day international series opener. But first up, the news with Ed Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Musa. Equatorial Guinea has appealed for international help following a series of blasts at a military camp which killed at least 15 people and injured hundreds more. The explosions in the city of Bata destroyed homes and scattered debris across a wide area. In a series of tweets, the health minister asked for volunteer health workers to go to Bata Regional Hospital. It has also asked for blood donations due to the high number of casualties. The BBC's Will Ross has more. Videos from the scene showed injured people staggering through clouds of smoke to reach safety. In a statement read out on national television, the president of Equatorial Guinea, Teodoro Obiangangema, said the explosions had been caused by the negligence of the team in charge of storing dynamite inside the military base. That put an end to hours of speculation over what exactly had happened. It's not surprising that the health services were quickly overwhelmed. These were extremely powerful explosions that flattened homes and tore the roofs off buildings. A senior official tasked with settling conflicts in Senegal has described the country as being on a dangerous course following several days of protests that left at least five young people dead. He also said the demonstrators should act peacefully and stop looting. The unrest was sparked by the arrest of an opposition politician, the BBC's World Ross reports. Although appointed by the president, the official mediator in Senegal is seen as fairly independent. And Aliou Badara Sisse came with a blunt message. After days of deadly unrest, he said the country was on the verge of an apocalypse. He said the authorities should listen to the angry youth who've been out on the streets and not just threaten and intimidate them. Egypt and Sudan have once again called for international mediation to end a long-running dispute over the construction of Ethiopia's dam on the River Nile. Both countries fear the dam could affect their water supply. The call comes as the as. Egypt's President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi was on a visit to Sudan for the first time since the overthrow of its former President Omar al-Bashir in 2019. During his visit to Khartoum, Sisi met Sudan civilian and military leaders. The fact that these were separate meeting points to the somewhat awkward relationship between the different personalities in Sudan's transitional administration. At least seven people have died in flooding caused by torrential rain in northwestern Algeria. The victims, including two children, were traveling in cars that were swept away by raging waters. Rescuers are searching for other people who are unaccounted for and more rain is forecast. 
And finally, an alliance of influential worker unions in Myanmar have called for an extended nationwide strike starting today. The strike is intended to cause a full extended shutdown of the country's economy in an attempt <coughs> excuse me, to stop a military coup. Nine labor organizations are calling on Myanmar people to stop work in an effort to reverse the seizure of power by the military, which overthrew the civilian government on the 1st of February. Myanmar Country Program Director and Regional Senior Organizing Specialist for the Solidarity City, Andrew Tillet-Sachs, says many unions will begin a general strike immediately. The call by the unions came as an official from the party of deposed leader Aung San Suu Kyi died in police custody. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central. African time. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Our tens of thousands of people came out in Myanmar on Sunday in one of the biggest days of protests against the coup despite overnight raids by security forces in the main city Yangon on campaign leaders and opposition activists. The biggest turnout in Sunday's protest was in Myanmar's second city, Mandalay, where activists staged a sit-in protest after two minutes of silence in honour of people killed by police and the army, videos showed. Rana Sen has more. Live video posted online showed Sunday's largest turnout was in Mandalay, Myanmar's second city, and Ravina Shamdasani, the spokeswoman for the UN Human Rights Office, spoke out after troops fired at paramedics helping injured anti-coup protesters. Myanmar's military must stop murdering and jailing protesters. It is utterly abhorrent that security forces are firing live ammunition against peaceful protesters across the country. We are also appalled at the documented attacks against emergency medical staff and ambulances that are attempting to provide care to those who have been injured. Eight policemen and some civilians meanwhile sought refuge in India in an international twist to the crackdown. Asok Sajanar, a former diplomat, said India must be neutral. One is that it's a humanitarian problem. There would also be a tendency to look upon it in a humanitarian manner. We have been providing asylum to a large number of these refugees that have come from all over. So here, one, it is a humanitarian problem. Second is, uh, you know, what is it that we are looking at in Myanmar? Because in Myanmar, our relations with the military are important. So I think we have to deal with this issue in a very, very sensitive manner that it doesn't send out a wrong signal to either of the two parties. And former Indian Army General Shashi Astana echoed the words of caution as Myanmar demanded India hand over the officers who fled across the border to Mizoram state. Problem is that as of now, it is a humanitarian issue versus a security issue and there is a dilemma in between. In my opinion, for the time being, we will have to perhaps Myanmar uh, military janta as it is under fair amount of international pressure. 
let's wait and watch a little let's follow the principle of non interference in uh, internal affairs of others while ensuring that our own security is very well under check at least 50 anti coup protesters have died so far scores are injured and 17000 others detained state television is under military control internet curfew is on and tanks are out on the streets of myanmar whole world must understand this nature of this illegal regimes that they are like terrorist group now they are terrorists within the state they are terrorizing the people of myanmar and we are looking at international uh, criminal courts and other un mechanisms it will be really be difficult uh, to do it through united nations security council but we are looking uh, yeah in great length what can be done to bring these uh, generals to accountable that was dr sasa the envoy representing myanmar's parliament to the united nations reaching out to the world for support that report by rana sen the un security council was unable to come to terms on friday on a joint statement of the myanmar military's increasingly bloody crackdown on pro democracy dissidents a closed meeting of a body charged with uh, ensuring international peace and stability concluded without a statement despite calls from the us and other members for a united front to address the crisis Russia and China, both permanent members with veto power, have previously voiced opinions in support of non-interference, describing the increasingly dire situation as an internal affair. Shown Bryce Peace has more from New York. In a closed session, Special Envoy Christine Schreiner-Bergner said it was critical the council was resolute and coherent in putting security forces on notice and standing with the people of Myanmar. She said genuine democracy required civilian control over the military, urging the international community not to lend legitimacy or recognition to the regime, warning that live ammunition against protesters was a gross betrayal of the people the military is sworn to protect. UK Ambassador Barbara Woodward briefed the press after the meeting. We heard from the special envoy that the Security Council and indeed the international community more broadly has a collective responsibility to safeguard the democratic aspirations of the people of Myanmar. The United Kingdom condemns the use of violence against peaceful protesters, calls for the immediate cessation of violence and for those responsible to be held accountable. Several countries including the UK, US and Canada have already sanctioned the military while the EU is considering similar measures. After violent repression saw more than 50 people killed and over 1000 detained as the military clamps down on protests against its illegal power grab. United Kingdom supports the role of regional organizations in particular ASEAN in resolving the crisis. We'll continue to monitor closely the situation in Myanmar and consider further action through the Security Council in the coming days. We pressed the permanent council member further. Listen to my exchange with Ambassador Woodward. I just want to sort of probe your uh, statement Ambassador exploring further measures under the UN charter given that Russia and China have gone on the record to call this an internal uh, affair an internal matter and that the international community should respect Myanmar's sovereignty 
just given the makeup of the council, should the people of Myanmar have any real expectation that it can actually produce a consensus position uh, that you intimate about? I think it's worth remembering that on the 4th of February, the council uh, reached agreement on a unanimous statement, which was the first in a decade uh, on these political uh, issues. And China and Russia and India, all of us signed up to that statement, uh, Vietnam as well, and that's a member of ASEAN. Uh, so I think the council is very clear uh, in its expectations that the military in Myanmar will release the prisoners, return to democratic process, respect freedom of the press and civil society. But as the situation has deteriorated, I think it's right that the council uh, return and consider the next steps. And that's what we were discussing today. Special Envoy Bergener also warned that the coup had undermined the fight against COVID-19 in the country and that the humanitarian situation remained acute with more than one million people in need. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. South Africa has been warned against embracing a bystander syndrome when it comes to issues of women's leadership and countering the scourge of femicide and other forms of violence against women. That was the message from the Executive Director of UN Women as the world marks International Women's Day today. Under the theme, Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in the COVID-19 World, Dr. Pumzilim Lambunguka has sought to highlight the urgent need to ensure that more women are in leadership positions as the world begins to build back from the impacts of a pandemic that has disproportionately affected women and girls. Sean Bryce Peace reports. The data is clear. Women and girls have been hardest hit by the pandemic, from losing jobs in the informal sector, unpaid care work, loss of schooling, a rise in forced child marriage, and the exponential surge in gender-based violence, among others, as Dr. Pumzilem Lambongluka explains. From central banks, from governments, we have been uh, told that uh, the pandemic has hit women harder. Two-thirds of the jobs that we have lost uh, were lost by women. Uh, Women have been thrown into extreme poverty in all parts of the world. Girls are dropping out of school, rather not returning back to school after the long period of school closure. And this is risking a a lost generation that is engendered. So in order to fix these problems, you need women to be part and parcel of the processes that are looking for solutions and for relief. She warned that even national task teams on COVID recovery were dominated by men, risking perpetuating practices that have now been deepened by the pandemic. The fact that so many women lost uh, uh, their jobs uh, during COVID This is because the women have always been employed in low paying jobs, in jobs that are not uh, protected, where women do not have enforceable contracts and it's therefore easy to dismiss them. So if we're looking about building back better, we have to make sure that women have secured jobs and have decent jobs. Mlambongluka argues that women's leadership doesn't happen organically and must often be preceded by special measures such as quotas and targets. The latest Interparliamentary Union report on women in Parliament shows that the global proportion of women in Parliaments reached a record at 25.5%, 
with just three countries at above 50% representation, Rwanda, Cuba and the United Arab Emirates. South Africa is at almost 46%. But women's leadership is complicated even further, as Mlambongluka explains. The 22 women in the world that are heads of state, all of them have been harassed. And it is getting worse now because uh, of what can happen in the social media. We have the vice president of, of America being trolled. I'm sure you've seen the trolls uh, that she has been exposed to. You have the two prime minister and the prime minister and president uh, uh, of Estonia. Same thing, facing the challenges. We know about the prime minister of Australia, what she went through in Kenya. Uh, the harassment of women from counties to national and some of the women deciding that, that I cannot put my family through this because when they suffer, their families also suffer. Asked about her personal experience in leadership, particularly as a black woman, this was that exchange. There is an expectation that uh, you do not have uh, the capability for the job. So when, when you are in the job, People can actually try to ignore you and marginalize you in your own position. It is therefore important to really know your stuff, uh, to participate actively in decision making, and to always go to meetings prepared. Have you felt uh, personally undermined, particularly in your current role? Not so much in this uh, uh, current uh, role. Uh, but certainly in the role uh, of being a, a politician in non-traditional areas, in minerals and energy, in trade and industry, in, as, as a vice president, where sometimes, in fact, most of the time you were a minority, you actually had to make sure that uh, you are not a guest. Asked about a recent Amnesty International report that says homes across southern Africa have become enclaves of cruelty, rape, and violence for women and girls. I'm afraid that with all the work that has been done, and I think it's fair to say that we've seen increased uh, attention to, to, to the issue of violence against women and femicide, greater awareness, more resources. But, you know, look at the statistics. We are clearly not winning. Uh, we still have a long way to go. So this is not the time uh, to, 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 to relax. We have to do more. We have to stay the course. I, mean, I, I just don't know what more to say uh, other than say we need everybody to be part of the fight. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Reaction has been mixed about the decision of South Africa's Judicial Conduct Committee against the country's Chief Justice Mokhweng Mokhweng. The JCC has ordered the Chief Justice to apologize unconditionally and retract statements relating to South Africa's stance on Israel he made during a webinar hosted by the Jerusalem Post in June last year. While the local chapter of the boycott, diverse sanctions, movement and the SACP welcomed the ruling, others such as the South African Zionist Federation and the South African Friends of Israel have rejected it, as Wusi Chimombe reports. During the webinar hosted by the Jerusalem Post, Chief Justice Mokhweng Mokhweng quoted a number of biblical verses that he said as a Christian made it impossible to be opposed to the state of Israel. He went further, saying that South Africa 
should be open to looking at its international relations policy broadly on the Middle East crisis and consider playing a bridging role between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Have we cut diplomatic ties with our previous colonizers? Have we embarked on a disinvestment campaign against those that are responsible for untold suffering in South Africa and the continent of, of Africa? Did Israel take away our land? Did Israel take the mineral wealth of South Africa and of Africa? So we've got to move from a position of principle here. We've got to have a broader perspective and say, we know what it means to suffer and to be made to suffer. But we've always had the spirit of generosity, the spirit of forgiveness, the spirit of building bridges. Following the comments, Mokhweng indicated that he would not apologize for them, even if 50 million people marched for 10 years for him to do so. The SA-BDS coalition has lauded the JCC's decision. Here's SABDS convener Roshan Dadu. Well, we felt, as I think has been found in the ruling, that he involved himself in a political controversy or activity, um, which it is stipulated as Chief Justice he should not be doing. We found particularly that the comments he made were unrelated to discharging his judicial office, which is one of the stipulations in the, the contract conduct of how, he, how the Chief Justice needs to conduct themselves, um, and that he denounced government policy on Palestine on the eve of South Africa raising a debate in the UN Security Council. And the debate was in support of the human rights of the Palestinian people. In a statement, the SACP has urged Mokhweng to comply with the JCC's decision, saying this will assist in restoring public trust and respect for the judiciary. However, the South African Zionist Federation, together with the South African Friends of Israel, believe that the order that Mokhweng apologize and retract his statements must be taken on review. Zionist Federation National Chairperson Rowan Polovin. The original comments of the Chief Justice were legitimate, fair and in fact impartial. They gave full credence to both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They were balanced and they expressed support for peace and a peaceful resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Secondly, it's unfortunate that an anti-Israel pressure group is trying to drive a wedge between peace-loving biblical Christian South Africans and the rest of the country and are trying to make this issue into one that is politically controversial. Polovan says the JCC's decision is part of an institutionalized cancel culture which sends out a message that those with whom one does not share a belief system with can be targeted. Advocate for civil society organization Africa for Palestine, which was one of the complainants in the case, Ben Winks, explains what is likely to happen going forward. If within the next 10 days he says no, I'm going to appeal, then he has the right to do that within a month. And then a three-member panel of the Judicial Conduct Committee will conduct a hearing and will decide whether the original judgment should be upheld or overturned or varied in some way. Now, if he's unsuccessful in the appeal, he must comply with the original order to apologize. If he refuses to comply, that in itself becomes a separate form of misconduct uh, under the Judicial Services Act. Um, and then he will be, there will be a complaint.
complaint again of having uh, committed that form of misconduct, and that is regarded as a more serious offence and potentially an impeachable offence. There has been no word from the Chief Justice on the matter as yet. That report by Busi Chimombe. While calls by some opposition parties in South Africa's parliament for the removal of the public protector Busisuim Kwebani increase, the ruling ANC has kept mum about allegations that Lutuli House has instructed its employees not to vote with the so-called enemy. Weekend News reports stated that ANC Secretary-General Ace Mahashule told the party caucus in Parliament not to endorse the removal of Mkwebane, sought by opposition parties. Abongwe Kobokan has more. While the future of the public protector seems to be hanging in the balance, political bickering is taking place between the majority party in the national legislature and the opposition benches about the envisaged impeachment of Mkwebane. But the Speaker of the National Assembly, Tandu Modise, has announced that the decision to whether remove Mkwabana or not will be made before the end of this month. If the NA goes ahead with the recommendations of the independent panel, Mkwabana will be the first PP to be impeached under the current democratic dispensation. Media reports over the weekend mentioned that ANC Secretary General Ace Mahashule had instructed all the party members of parliament through its caucus, never to vote with the opposition should the need arise. Party chief Wipemi Majodina declined to comment, but ANC member of parliament Mervyn Dex did not shy away to express his loyalty. Firstly, it is a DA motion, and I will not support these neoliberals in their fight against the public protector. Secondly, this is an attack on our Chapter 9 institutions. It is also an attack on the person of the public protector because of her investigations against very powerful persons in this country. Lastly, when the DA submitted this motion to the office of the Speaker, it was not brought to us as parliamentarians to debate on it and take a decision on the motion of the DA. The official opposition, the Democratic Alliance, which has initiated the beginning of the process in removing Mkwebana, told the SABC News that Mahashule's party internal political interest are not important than that of the country. DHF Whip Natasha Mazzoni. The Democratic Alliance has taken note of comments made by SG of the ANC, Mr. Ace Makashule. I think Mr. Makashule would do well to remember that he is not the president of the ANC as much as he wishes he was. There is a process that is in place and certainly no threats and no common comments made by the SG in local Sunday times will put us off our ultimate goal, which is to make sure that South Africa is always put first before ideological party politics. COPE added its voice as an opposition by saying Mkwebana was never its preferred candidate from the beginning. COPE National Spokesperson Dennis Bloom. Public protector Busisi Mkwebana must resign to spare the embarrassment of being fired. We welcome the report of the independent review panel that recommends that premier fascia evidence exists for the public protector to be removed from office. Cope never voted in parliament from Gweba to be the public protector. The transformation movement disagrees with the DA and COPE for Mkwebana to be removed in this fashion. ATM spokesperson Zamanjona has described the call for Mkwebana's removal as a tragic attempt. As the African transformation movement, we truly view it as truly tragic 
that the Democratic Alliance would pass a motion of no confidence on a highly qualified and capable African woman whose competence and passion for transformation has actually made her the number one enemy for all racist and corrupt dark forces. The public protector South Africa, under the leadership of Advocate Mkwebani in the financial year 2019-2020, has achieved a 79% performance target in corporate governance. That report by Abongwe Kobokan. In each and every one of us, there, there is a purpose and grace. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that, that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live, live your life, life by, by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of Monday, Monday motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by, by design, design, be the architect of your life. Only on Channel Africa, be African, African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Dan Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. man Musa, good morning. In the headlines, Equatorial Guinea's appealed for international help following a series of blasts at a military camp which killed at least 15 people and injured hundreds more. Dozens of people are feared dead after a fire at a migrant detention center in the Yemeni capital of Sana'a and an alliance of influential worker unions in Myanmar have called for an extended nationwide strike starting today. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Thank you, Anne. It is 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. This time a year ago, no one was prepared for what would become our working lives. Working from home, continuous Zoom meetings from constant mask wearing and sanitizing. Many of us are still trying to come to terms with this new normal. So are the lessons from doing business 2020 style still relevant in this new year? Joining us on the line to share his thoughts on this issue is Bert Rodriguez, CEO of Biodex, a biological chemical technologies company in South Africa. Bert, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Thank you. Now, do you think organizations now really embrace working from home because they never did before um, COVID or are they still forced by the situation? So, you know, a year ago we were all clocking in and clocking out uh, and it's a year later and we're not clocking in and we're not clocking out. Many companies have... uh, put work schedules in place for people uh, prior to COVID to work from home, but it was a swear word. If you told someone you're working remotely, they'd say, what? Are you a programmer or you're a gamer? Uh, There weren't many professions that you would think were suitable for for working remotely. But a lot of systems that have been put into business practice, which do not follow the standard hierarchical methods of there's the boss on top, there's three under him, there's seven under them, there's 20, and you land up with a 1,000 people at the bottom. Those systems have been challenged over the past couple of years. Um, And what has happened with COVID is that has now been amplified into more of a standard business practice rather than the exception. Now, basically, working from home has mixed benefits. You've touched on that slightly. What can you highlight briefly? You know, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of companies would not really look at that. It would be somebody just wanting to sort of slack off where um, the banking industry, for instance, had already started that process of some of the employees working remotely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been coming for a while where people that work on a computer uh, that basically need a mobile piece of hardware and a piece of software uh, do not have to be at a desk. And I remember maybe eight years ago, ten years ago, when Standard Bank moved into the concept of having a building where people use the premises but they don't live in it. And they managed to uh, create an environment for banking that suited Uh, multiple users instead of a building that is specifically set for a particular function. So that had already been put in place and people were already using it. So the benefits, I'm not saying that working from home has more benefits than working from the office because from a capital point of view, of course, the employer uh, will be able to save costs and make the job simpler. What I am saying is that the new way that you can engage in a physical job does not require you to be there every day. Uh, Schedules are being planned. People are taking two, three days off a week. Uh, Sorry, that is the incorrect terminology. It's not time off. 
It's you are not present at your office or you're not present at your bench. Uh, but these schedules are being put in place so that we can deal with uh, COVID level five, where you may just have to overnight have all your stuff at home. Now, we're not in that situation right now. We're at level one. But when do we have to uh, implement a system like that again? Are you prepared? Is it ready to go? And can you carry it into the future as a business model? And I think it's doable. What lessons should have been learned from this COVID pandemic? Well, there are many, but let's touch about the business ones and the entrepreneurial lessons, um, as well as the human behavior lessons. So COVID came about. We didn't know much about it. We still don't know that much about it. Uh, as you know, or may know, Lulu, uh, viruses need two years, two seasons to go around. Uh, we've got one season behind us. We're entering season two. So what we have learned from a business perspective and entrepreneurial perspective is that you can do much more than you thought you could. A year ago, things that were impossible because, well, uh, too little money, uh, too little time, uh, too little effort, too little understanding. I think what COVID has really brought to our doorstep is none of this is undoable. And the, the possibilities of the future have become very, very open. Uh, people have been talking about 4IR. Uh, 4IR, in my understanding, is the implementation of modern, incremental, innovative technologies being taken up by corporate and governmental institutions. So this is the perfect time for South Africa to take out its intellectual property portfolios that government and private sector has invested substantially over the last 20 years in funding entrepreneurs. And those technologies have not made it to the market because corporate South Africa and governmental South Africa have not supported the technology take-up. So we're a little bit behind the curve, but COVID has changed that. COVID has shown that this, you're not late for anything. Um, if you can't start taking up new technologies right now, develop new business frameworks where you don't have to adhere to a hierarchical business system. It becomes far more creative. Uh, people become far more empowered and you will find that they can work off-site, they can be at the jobs when they want and we could find ourselves with a lot of new technologies being implemented, creating those new jobs. Now, do you think that the working from home status quo for many organizations is here to stay? I believe so. Uh, especially you mentioned banking. Uh, mm. Lulu, I don't believe banking will ever be uh, a very busy physical hub. Uh, even business deals which in the past an entrepreneur would go and sit or a businessman would go sit with a bank manager face-to-face do a presentation on a screen and talk about what the ideas were, what are the plans, possibilities, that's all over. Mm. So that industry is gone. But even an industry like Biodex, that is a biological chemicals manufacturer, so we have physical reactors and we have physical forklifts, so people need to physically be doing that job. But what that has brought about is those uh, uh, human resources cannot work from home, but they can become owners of their own jobs, which is what Biodex is now bringing into play to change the business 
uh, way we used to do it. So even for those that are physical, they got to be taught how to become owners of the job. Whether it's the forklifter, it's like it's his own company. We're going to adopt the system. You drive the forklift, assume it's your forklift, assume it's your business, and we're going to have to relearn uh, how we promote people to become owners of their own business within a business, whether you're a forklift driver or whether you're the chemical engineer doing the processing. That is all going to become a modern way of doing business. And just going back to looking at, for instance, universities and the way schooling has been done um, so far during from 2020 onwards, online is really going to be key going forward. And, uh, you know, do you think that uh, universities and colleges should keep the status quo as is, um, considering the fact that a lot of young people have performed even better than when going to campuses? Lulu, you raise a very, um, I would say, challenging subject to deal with. Mm. You know, education traditionally, and it includes me, which, you know, I finished school a while back and I finished my studies a while back. But traditionally, you would go learn a timetable, which a teacher would teach you, but they wouldn't teach you why you're learning the timetable. And as you grew up and you got to university, the function of you being in grade zero or what, what it's called today uh, was for you to start learning times tables and English and all other subject matter. But the why you learning those things was never uh, brought into space. And when you got to university, what you were really demonstrating was also your skill to make it through three, four, five years of clocking in and clocking out, and you were demonstrating that you were capable of socializing and you're capable of making friends, which were people that were gonna go, are gonna go with you through to your, your career. I believe that the online study method has eliminated those functions of the old education system. So as you pointed out, people don't need to go to class to perform. They're performing better just learning the information. What has, I believe, has to change is universities uh, need to bring much closer to the student why they're learning the subject matter. And I believe the way to do that is to say, this is the problem you have and how you're going to solve it. And as you start opening the box and looking in it, you say, oh, I need multiplication or I need addition or I need software or I need to understand uh, some physics. And whilst you're figuring out what's in the box and what you need to know to understand the box, it's sort of a backtrack where you will then understand you need times tables to solve the problem. So universities online, performance has been excellent. I really feel for the students because of um, the lack of interaction, which is one of the big functions uh, an entrepreneur like myself or a businessman, when I look to employ a, a candidate that's coming out of university, uh, the first thing I tick the box is that the person managed to do three, four years. That shows some consistency. Then I look, of course, at results, and it shows the person managed to learn. And I look at the social uh, skill, and I say, yes, the person was able to interact and make friends. Because these people are groups that will need each other in 10 years' time and in 20 years' time and in 30 years' time. 
So I feel that is the challenge that the online uh, university and school system is going to bring upon uh, the future students and the current students, of course. Well, there is uh, talk of uh, a third wave coming, and some say it may come sooner than the expected time frames. Do you think that at some point in time we're going to go back to some sort of a, a hard lockdown? I believe so, Lulu. Um, you know, South Africa, we, we like to know, think we're at the tip of the southern African continent and things are different here, but they're not. Global is um, a small place. We've learned that over the last 100 years or 200 years. But we will get the third wave. I don't know what the president is going to do as far as locking goes. Already as it is, Lulu, we're at level one, but it looks like we're still at level three. Uh, The traffic of people has not automatically increased just because we've gone to level one. Uh, The fear in people's mind remains real. The challenges remain real. People are very concerned, and we are concerned because we don't have enough data. And when you don't have enough data, you cannot compute what the possibilities could be. So a virus will go around twice. It's been around once. When the third wave got to uh, Europe, it really was devastating, not from a death rate point of view, uh, because the second strains or the mod- or the VOCs are not uh, that more deadly than the first virus. But the hard lock might occur due, due to uh, uncontrolled infection spreading. But I do not believe that spread is going to be because people are going to be out and about at that work because they're already not out and about at work. Um, things are very quiet. Traffic in the streets is quiet. Restaurants are struggling. Um, People are, have not come back into the functioning and mobile world just because we're at level one. So considering it is March and we're already at level one, but that is the behavior of the citizens, uh, I believe we'll still get the infection rates. Uh, the timeline, of course, we lagging Europe a couple of months. So it would be reasonable to assume June, July, we would have a high infection rate again. Um, but I think the lock will be automatic rather than imposed. Mm. But we well, will still go up there. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, we have run out of time and I have to end it there for today. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Lulu. Bye-bye. That's Bert Rodriguez, Chief Executive Officer of Biodex, a biological chemical technologies company in South Africa, joining us on the line. It's 7.46 and our economics update. Up next with Tabi Solohoko. A very good morning. South Africa's Tourism Minister Mamoloko Gubayangubani says that the inclusion of tourism frontline workers as a part of Phase 2 of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout will inspire tourists to visit the country and help in the recovery of the tourism sector. Speaking during a two-day domestic travel activation campaign in the Northern Cape Province, the minister said... The detection of the new 501Y V2 coronavirus variant affected international tourism in the country.
She says it will take time to regain the number of international tourists with the sector, currently being boosted by domestic tourism. What we are getting as a message is that I would feel comfortable as a traveller when I come to your country and I know that I will interact with a traveller, a guide or a frontline staff in a hotel who is vaccinated and that we believe that if we do that then we'll be able to build confidence and where it's possible get some of this frontline in those sectors into phase two of rollout just to build confidence as we recover. The chief executive officer of Business Unity South Africa and the former managing director of the banking association, Kaskuvadia, has described the passing of Peter Matare as a tragic loss at a time when his leadership is most needed. 61-year-old Matare passed away yesterday. His family has confirmed that he died due to COVID-19-related complications. Matare has held several senior positions in the corporate world. He served as CEO of the SABC and Tiger Brands, and at the time of his passing was serving as deputy CEO of the APSA Group. As government seeks to recuperate a desperately ailing economy amidst battling the coronavirus pandemic, Kuvadia says people such as Matare would have led the fight for economic recovery. It is indeed a tragic and sad loss, very passionate about organized business and the role of business in society in promoting economic growth and prosperity in the country. At a time we need skilled individuals to actually ensure that we put ourselves onto a sustainable economic growth path. COVID has been a severe constraint on economic growth and social growth beside the human cost. And people like Peter would have been at the forefront of getting the economy to be repositioned to actually start growth again. Namibia is a heavy dependence on South Africa for fresh fruit is expected to end by 2025 as Stamperita Roots Agricultural Project plans to produce 35% of Namibia's fresh fruit and vegetables by then. The project involves an agricultural village that creates opportunities for farmers to purchase land and be part of a small-scale cooperative. The project's produce has already made it onto the local market, which includes a variety of fruits, vegetables, eggs and a free range chickens. The fate of multi-million dollar economic partnership agreement between Kenya and the United Kingdom hangs in the balance with just a day to its ratification deadline. The deal signed between Kenya's Cabinet Secretary for Trade, Betty Maina, and her UK counterpart, Ranil uh, Jaya Wardina, in 2020 was welcomed with optimism by the business communities in both countries. However, last week, a parliament refused to ratify it. Zimbabwe's Victoria Falls Stock Exchange listed seed breeder, Seed Co. International Limited, says its offer to swallow up its parent company, Seed Co. Limited, had received overwhelming support from shareholders. It said over 90% of shareholders approved the deal. The transaction had to go through a secondary offer after some shareholders had turned down the primary offer made at the end of last year under the same terms. 
The US dollar is a trading at 378.25 Nigerian Nara, 1092 Botswana Pula, 108.70 Kenyan Shilling, and 2189 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, I'll start in Brazil. One US dollar trades at 5 rubles 68, Russia, 74 rubles 46, India, 74 rupees 31, China, 6 yuan 49, and in South Africa, a dollar is a trading at 15 rand 34. The US dollar is also trading at 72 pence to the British pound and 83 cents to euro gold $1,706 and platinum $1,134 per ounce brand crude $70.75 a barrel Africa your favorite channel Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update is rugby news. The British and the Irish Lions have declined Australia's offer to host this summer series against South Africa. It has been revealed that a board meeting made the decision due to the lack of financial certainty over the finance of Rugby Australia, staging the eighth game tour, which culminates in a three-test series against the Springboks. Four options remain under consideration, but each has significant drawbacks with the decision due this month. Postponing it until next year is the least likely cause of action due to the ramifications for the Home Union's summer tours, while the last option is cancellation. South Africa's board meeting this week with the likelihood of the world champions hosting the Lions behind closed doors gaining momentum. On to cricket news now. A record partnership between Lizelle Lee and Laura Volvart helped the momentum Proteas make a stunning start to their five-match one-day international series against India with a stunning eight-wicket demolition at the Ikana Cricket Stadium in Lucknow on Sunday. The pair amassed 169 for the first wicket as South Africa chased down 178-run target with eight wickets intact, securing their biggest win over the hosts in the process. Team captain Sune Lu says she's happy with her charges. I'm extremely proud of the girls. Um, I think the way we bowled today was exceptional and our fielding even more exceptional. Um, and just the way Lizelle and Laura batted, um, the world class. Coaches Abdallah Mubiru and Livingston Babazi named their first crane squad after being put in temporary charges of the cranes team ahead of the final two Afghan qualifiers against Burkina Faso and Malawi later this month. The pair selected 31 players who are expected to start training on the 18th of March ahead of the home qualifier against Burkina Faso on the 24th of March and away to Malawi five days later. The squad includes Yunus Sandamu, who has returned to competitive action with league champions Vipers scoring five times in six games after sitting out for more than a year. Eight-time PGA Tour winner Brooks Kupka has withdrawn from the 2021 Players' Championship due to a knee injury. That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, 
Zola Africa amka na unai That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our folding news is Miriam Makeba with a song titled Aluta Continua. Goodbye and keep safe. My people, my people, open your eyes and answer the call of the drum. Freely more, freely more, some more amashe, some more amashe. Freddy Moore.